Okay, so we're going to cover the first 13 chapters of uh, Second Kings. Uh, we still have uh, Elijah here in the first chapter or two of uh, Second Kings, uh, but mainly we're going to talk about um, Elisha. So remember last time we went over just kind of where we are chronologically. We have Solomon here up until 931. We have the splitting of the kingdoms. We have Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And we described how this happens, that we have now two parallel kingdoms. Judah, a few good kings, a few good things happening, not many. And then everything is bad here on the side of the ten northern uh, tribes of Israel. The capital was Samaria. Okay, so uh, we're going to start here with um, a king Ahaziah. Okay, Elijah, Elisha overlaps here. And I think I mentioned before, I just find it interesting that who gets a prophet it's just surprising here that uh, the prophets are all sent to the bad kingdom of Israel. And uh, that even Jonah goes off to Nineveh, the capital of the enemy city, Assyria. He would expect all the prophets to line up here um, with uh, the kingdom of Judah. So having a prophet doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're the best people or the best uh, group. It may mean God is working harder to, to reach you. So I'm going to start with a story here in uh, 2 Kings 1, just to kind of give a setting for how bad things were at this time. King Ahaziah of Israel fell off the balcony on the roof of his palace in Samaria and was seriously injured. So he sent some messengers to consult, not God, Beelzebub, the god of the Philistine city of Ekron, in order to find out whether or not he would recover. But an angel of the Lord commanded Elijah to go and meet the messengers of King Ahaziah and ask them, why are you going to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? It is, because, is it because you think there is no god in Israel? So how bad was it? We have the, the king of Israel. I mean, the king is supposed to bring the people to God. The king is supposed to be you know, God's representative. And here he is, falls off the balcony, doesn't consider consulting the real god, but is off to consult uh, Beelzebub. So we need to understand some of these stories in the context of a very, very serious uh, rebellion and uh, not much faith at all in God. Now, here are all the miracles. Actually, these aren't all of the miracles of uh, Elisha. I found uh, uh, a few more here this morning, but uh, it's just interesting to consider how dense the fantastic and spectacular miracles are in this part of the Bible. You know, we usually associate faith with miracles. If we just had more faith, we'd see a lot more miracles. But here in this time of the Bible, we have almost no faith, and we have tons of miracles. Okay, so that relationship doesn't seem to hold true for at least many passages in the Bible. So, uh, you know, he parts the River Jordan with his coat. He purified uh, the water with uh, some salt. He made some uh, ditches, became filled with water, and then had the appearance of blood, which scared uh, the enemy forces or tricked them. He called rain down to feed the, or give the animals and uh, people water. You remember the, the widow's jar that continuously poured with oil. Now here's an interesting one from a neurologic perspective. A boy complained of a headache and then died. Well, who knows what he had, but uh, meningitis, subarachnoid hemorrhage, hydrocephalus. I don't know, it's an interesting differential, but um, we will find out someday. And uh, he cured poison in the stew with some flour. Okay, Jesus wasn't the only one to feed people with bread. Elisha miraculously fed 100 men with 20 loaves of bread. Um, Naaman, remember, was cured of leprosy. The axe head falls in the water, and Elisha causes the axe head to float. And then we have some Syrians that are 
struck blind and led to the kingdom of Syria. So I've kind of gone through this and decided, hmm, what, what, is, um, what is something really meaty here that we could talk about? Um, is there something that is more uh, ideal, more Christ-like than others? Well, we'll talk about that. I think that probably the most difficult story, though, the most challenging one in terms of, you know, we're trying to understand what God is like, what's God's character. And um, so I have to bring up all the worst stories uh, to be uh, honest about this. So we're in 2 Kings 2. Elijah just went up in chariots of fire. Okay, and uh, Elisha is coming back down from this incredible uh, thing that just happened. And uh, then he went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him and said to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And essentially, he must have been, uh, not have much hair, Elisha, but uh, they were essentially saying, hey, join Elijah. Why don't you go up too? And so he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Um, these stories make it uh, admittedly challenging to say, you want to know what God is like? Jesus, who never killed anyone. No bears came out of the woods uh, to chase the Pharisees around. It didn't happen. Okay, so how do we understand stories like this? Why do we have so many stories like this uh, in the Old Testament and not during the life of Jesus? Well, I think the setting is always important. Remember, we just read one chapter earlier, the king is seeking after Beelzebub. So, I mean, there's, there's no interest in God. And, and these youths, I mean, just imagine, they were aware, apparently, of this miraculous translation of Elijah, chariots of fire, and they mock his successor, hey, you go up too. And so I think, um, you know, what is God supposed to do in this point? His prophet has just pronounced a curse on these youths. And... Um, you know, I think uh, just as a measure of uh, respect, I mean, you'll notice, you read through the rest of the story of Elisha, he wasn't bothered again by his people after this. You know, I mean, sure, word got around. Bears came out of the woods. And um, so he was allowed at least to give his message, okay, for, for a long time. And so I think um, at least it got attention and perhaps allowed Elisha to have a ministry when uh, uh, he wouldn't have otherwise, so again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, uh, respect, reverence. I think if that isn't there, there's no hope for even hearing perhaps what the real message might be. So, so that's a challenging one. But I want to come back here and just talk, uh, when we talked about Elijah, remember the fire that came down and destroyed the altar? And we made this point about miracles and power. And I think this is important just because we often suggest or imply, um, you know, man, if God would just come and show himself something, you know, dramatic, that would clear up a lot of questions. I mean, that would, that would really solve a lot of problems. Uh, we mentioned a few weeks ago that, you know, atheism, God could very easily um, solve that problem by showing some power, coming down as a big uh, fireball or something, doing a whole bunch of miracles. But when you look at the biblical record, it, it is really not that effective, it doesn't seem. I mean, just consider Mount Sinai. Remember the description we read last year? God came down in fire, the mountain shook, the trumpets blew, got louder and louder, the people were terrified. Okay, now there's a pretty impressive demonstration, but of course, what were they doing 40 days later? They were dancing drunk around a golden calf. Moses was a little late coming down from the mountain. So you would, you know, you would think that uh, uh, belief and, uh, and so on, uh, obedience to God would pick up for at least more than 40 days. Okay, but it didn't seem to work. 
And we talked um, in our Bible study on uh, Elijah, how the fire came down. Very impressive. Remember the description. Everyone was on their knees. The Lord is God. And you read on and you expect to see a big conversion. Okay? Nothing happened. They're all Jezebel is chasing Elijah. I mean, no one, it didn't have any long-term effect. Okay, and uh, I also mentioned Jesus resurrecting Lazarus, three days in a tomb, stinking, and the Pharisees left the tomb plotting to kill Jesus. So you need to be careful wishing for more miracles and power because it doesn't seem very often to have a transforming um, effect. And if really, if the issue is God's trustworthiness, God's character, coming to understand that God really is just like Jesus, how do you intimidate someone into that kind of a belief? Okay, You can't overwhelm someone. You can't force someone to think that uh, that is the reality. Okay, So um, the, the means that God uses really are uh, the means of Jesus, persuasive truth, evidence, the truth spoken in love. And, and I think that's, those are ultimately the, the effective means. Miracles are a means of getting our attention. Okay, but uh, they, they seem rather disappointing overall. So as we look at these uh, miracles here, um, you know, where do we find Christ in here? If you had to pick one out that represents um, perhaps something that would reveal about Christ. Well, uh, I'll try to make a, a case for this. And, and I don't think it's she-bears because, uh, remember, Elijah did something very similar. He called down fire to destroy the guards that were coming to get him. And, of course, the disciples knew their Bibles quite well. And when Jesus was uh, chased out of a town or rejected, the disciples said, Lord, do you wish us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? Okay, but Jesus turned and rebuked and severely censured them. He said, you do not know what sort of spirit you are. I think we, we have to say, we have to put Jesus up on a pedestal and say, that's the ideal. Okay, the, the whole Bible is not just on a flat line, all equal points of revelation of truth about God. And that's very clear. You read Matthew 5. Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's in the Old Testament, but no longer. Now I tell you, love your enemy. And it went through in that whole Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said this, but now we're going to do it this way. Okay, so, so there is supposed to be a progressive understanding on our part of what is ideal and what is true. And apparently, she bears fire from heaven. Uh, that's not the ideal. So what, I, what I'd like to uh, get to uh, in Elisha is coming to what I think is really a central message of Jesus that is um, very much overlooked. It just, to me, it is such a core of the things that he talked about. Love your enemies, pray for those who curse you, turn the other cheek to their national enemies, the Romans. If they ask you to carry their pack one mile, carry it two. Don't seek revenge, pay evil back with good. Um, this, this is really at the core of the message of Jesus. And I think um, if we consider that the Assyrians, if we're willing to accept that these were really enemies, cruel enemies, then I think uh, there are some surprises here in, Eli in uh, the story of Elisha. The Assyrians are known as the lords of the massacres. Okay, they were uh, remarkably cruel people. This is from a book called um, Five Great Monarchies. That one of the ancient monuments discovered in the ruins of ancient Assyria has this inscription by a king in 883 of a conquered city. There are men, young and old, I took as prisoners. Of some I cut off the feet and hands. Of others I cut off the noses, ears, and lips. Of the young men's ears I made 
uh, a heap of the old men's heads I built a minaret. And there are lots of pictures that um, I decided not to, not to spend time going over. But uh, the cruelty of the Assyrians, you know, who would skin people alive and do all kinds of things, uh, these were real enemies. Okay, and so just when we look at um, what happened during this time, I mean, if you were an Israelite, I think you might perhaps be offended at the treatment of Naaman, who was the commander of the Syrian army and was highly respected and esteemed by the king of Syria. He was a great soldier, but he suffered from a dreaded skin disease, of course, leprosy. And in one of their raids against Israel, the Syrians had carried off a little Israelite girl who became a servant of Naaman's wife. And you remember that this girl uh, was a witness to Naaman, and, and he was eventually healed. Okay, but I just, again, find it interesting. Who's getting healed during this time? Jesus even brought up this story. It was Naaman, the Assyrian, um, who was healed of leprosy. Uh, but the story that, um, I don't think I've ever talked about this before in a Bible study, but I just found this a, an amazing story about what, how God intervened here in this ongoing battle between uh, Assyria and Israel over uh, 200 years. So the king of Syria was at war with Israel, and he consulted his officers and chose a place to set up his camp. But Elisha sent word to the king of Israel, warning him not to go near that place because the Syrians were waiting in ambush there. So the king of Israel warned the people who lived in that place, and they were on guard. This happened several times. The Syrian king became greatly upset over this. He called in his officers and asked them, which one of you is on the side of the king of Israel? One of them answered, no one is, your majesty. The prophet Elisha tells the king of Israel what you say, even in the privacy of your own room. Well, find out where he is, the king ordered, and I will capture him. When he was told that Elisha was in Dothan, he sent a large force there with horses and chariots. They reached the town at night and surrounded it. Early the next morning, Elisha's servant got up, went out of the house, and saw the Syrian troops with their horses and chariots surrounding the town. He went back to Elisha and exclaimed, We are doomed, sir. What shall we do? Don't be afraid, Elisha answered. We have more on our side than they have on theirs. There's a famous key text there. And then he prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord answered his prayer, and Elisha's servant looked up, and saw the hillside covered with horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians attacked, Elisha prayed, O oh Lord, strike these men blind. And the Lord answered his prayer and struck them blind. And the question is, what is he going to do with them? And Elisha went to them and said, You are on the wrong road. This is not the town you were looking for. Okay, can we be uh, dishonest at times? Well, here he was a little deceptive, wasn't he? This is not the town you're looking for. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are after. Of course, he's the man they're after. And he led them to Samaria, the capital of Israel. As soon as they entered the city, Elisha prayed, Open their eyes, Lord, and let them see. And the Lord answered his prayer. He restored their sight. And when they saw that they were inside Samaria, and when the king of Israel saw the Syrians, he asked Elijah, Elisha, you hear the, the kind of the eagerness here, Shall I kill them, sir? Shall I kill them? I mean, just imagine, you've got your enemy right there, in your own gates, okay, this opportunity. And here's again what I find uh, remarkable. This is what Elisha said. No, not even soldiers you had captured in combat would you put to death. Give them something to eat and drink and let them return to their king. I mean, you bring the enemy in and you give them a meal. And so the king of Israel provided a great feast for them. And after they had eaten and drunk, he sent them back to the king of Syria 
And from then on, the Syrians stopped raiding the land of Israel. Isn't that an amazing story? Now, it didn't last very long. You read on a few chapters, they're back invading Israel again. Okay, but um, anyway, the, the divine intervention here for this problem is, all right, let's bring the soldiers in and let's, let's give them a feast. And I find it interesting that it worked, at least for a while. Okay, so I think in the story of Naaman, I'd like to suggest perhaps here, this is the greatest miracle of Elisha because to, to at least temporarily solve an ongoing bitter conflict between two nations in this way, I mean, this is unheard of. Okay, so um, I know we've talked about this before, but uh, this is, for me, such an important subject that I kind of want to go through and, and talk about this, this whole concept of loving enemies. What does that actually mean anyway? Um, I won't quote recent political figures who have said this because uh, that's always dangerous to do. You offend half the people who are either Democrats or Republicans, but loving these enemies isn't going to work. Okay, that's often said, well, it's not going to work in this case. Okay, and uh, when we say that, it ends up, we end up practicing that about 99% of the time. Well, I can't imagine it working with this enemy or that enemy. Okay, and again, the Syrians stopped raiding the land of Israel. And uh, I want to just talk a little bit about the way Jesus treated his enemies. He's the clearest example. I mean, he didn't just tell us, pray for your enemies. Um, Just the the way he treated people is quite remarkable. And I'll just bring up a couple of stories. Uh, One is in Luke 15, where Jesus is having this, uh, you know, how many contentious encounters he had with the Pharisees. And I found this whole story um, pretty remarkable, just, just the way he dealt with it. So one day when many tax collectors and other outcasts came to listen to Jesus, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law started grumbling. This man welcomes outcasts and even eats with them. And and some have suggested Jesus was crucified because of the people he ate with. Okay, this was so offensive. Eating with tax collectors, prostitutes. Okay, they're very offended with this. So Jesus told them this parable. Now, what parable would you tell someone? I mean, here he is, God in human form. And uh, his own people, who knew their Bible so well, um, think that he does his miracles by satanic influence, and they're offended by the people he hangs out with. Uh, If we just didn't know the story, how, how would we imagine Jesus would tell them? And so the parable he told them, I think, is uh, just you know, rather shocking. This is what he said. Well, suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. What do you do? You leave the other 99 sheep in the pasture and go looking for the one that got lost until you find it. Now, if you were a Pharisee, if you, uh, you know, didn't appreciate Jesus, how would you interpret this story? Do you see yourself as the one or as the 99? You'd see yourself as the faithful 99, right? Jesus is telling them, hey, I'm off seeking the one, the the tax collectors, the prostitutes. And you would still see yourself as part of the loyal group of 99, okay? Rather than scolding them right away. He told them a story uh, really to create sympathy for the one that was lost, okay? Rather than just openly rebuking them. And he said, when you find it, you are so happy that you put it on your shoulders and carry it back home. Okay, shouldn't you be happy when the tax collectors and the prostitutes come into the kingdom? And then you call your friends and neighbors together and say to them, I am so happy I found my lost sheep. Let us celebrate. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 respectable people like all of you who do not need to repent. 
Okay, I, and again, I, I think it was meant to create sympathy um, for these outcasts of society that Jesus took such an interest in. Okay, but uh, it didn't stop here. Okay, they're not. Uh, it doesn't seem from the context that this made much of an impact. So Jesus went on, and he told a total of five parables in this one setting. Uh, the next one's very similar. Uh, the lost coin. Okay, same thing. The coin is lost, and when you find that lost coin, you rejoice. It's wonderful. And then he told the story of the prodigal son. And again, now you have a rebel going off to the pig pen. Okay, God was able to win the rebel back, so it's similar to the lost coin and the lost sheep. But of course, now we have a little twist, an elder brother who is unhappy. Okay, and clearly that is meant to refer to the Pharisees. Now there's a, there's a rebuke uh, in here. I, I think what Jesus is doing is he's, he's uh, trying to reach them. Okay, perhaps they, they weren't uh, moved by the story of the sheep or the lost coin. So now he goes on and he tells the story of the prodigal son. And they're still not moved. And, it, and if you just read this through, it's clear. It's one setting, one context. So he tells the story of a dishonest manager or shrewd manager. And here there's a very clear rebuke to the Pharisees. And they got the message because when they heard all this, this last parable, they made fun of Jesus because they loved money. Okay, now, what does Jesus do? These are, I mean, openly, these are his enemies. And what Jesus did next is he told the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And we don't have time now to, to go through this story in detail, but the story of the rich man and Lazarus perfectly fit their, their theology, their understanding of what happens when you die. You go to the bosom of Abraham and hell, place of torture, and so on. I mean, this, this fit their model of things. And I think uh, for Jesus, I mean, this is kind of like sending out the she-bears, okay? Because, um, you know, the story here, Lazarus has sores, there's a rich man, and in, in their model of things, if you're rich, by definition, you're blessed by God. If you're sick, if you're poor, by definition, you're cursed by God. So as he told this story, I'm sure there was a gasp, uh, amazement here that, uh, that these men go in the opposite directions. I mean, the rich men go to the Abraham's bosom, but not in this story. Okay, the rich man went to the place of torture. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. Okay, very surprising. But remember, a, a parable is not for making 50 points of doctrine. It's to make one or two major points. And I think we need to read this parable in the context of the people Jesus is trying to reach. Okay, I think he scared them with this parable. Okay, and the conclusion here is the rich man answered, that is not enough, Father Abraham, but if someone were to rise from death and go to them, then they would turn from their sins. But Abraham said, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone were to rise from death. And do you think Jesus just picked Lazarus? You know, could have been James, could have been Joseph, could have been any other name. Uh, I don't know, he chose Lazarus for a reason. This was his crowning miracle. And again, what happened? Lazarus was resurrected, and they weren't persuaded by it. Okay, and what I like to think here is that perhaps some of these people remembered this parable. They remembered the resurrection of Lazarus. They remember what happened to Jesus in the cross and the story of his resurrection. And I think Jesus is trying to win these people. Okay, and he was willing to, to go to that extent, I think, to, to win his enemies. Okay, we'll talk more about this parable when we get to Luke. But again, I think we see a progression from you are the 99 faithful sheep. You're the coin that's not lost. 
Uh, you're the elder brother, the dishonest manager, and then finally you're the rich man who's going to the wrong place. Uh, I think it's, it's a method that Jesus is using to reach enemies because he cares for them. But um, let me go through just a couple more stories, and then we'll talk about other people in history who have used uh, this method of treating enemies. Hey, I know we've talked about this before, but the, the treatment of Judas is uh, just unbelievable. That when Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, hurry and do what you must. None of the others at the table understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Jude, Judas was in charge of the money bag, some of the disciples thought that Jesus had told him to go and buy what they needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. Can you imagine? Judas left the upper room, and some of the disciples are thinking he left for a worthy motive. Maybe he's going to feed the poor. Okay? This, is, this is what God is like. I mean, I think that's what we're supposed to project onto every story in the life of Jesus. God is like that. God is like that. And, of course, we have the supreme um, example here of Jesus laying down his life and praying for his enemies uh, with his dying breath. See, there's one way of looking at the Bible, and this, this came home in a, in a very powerful way for me just recently. Uh, we have some uh, friends that we've had for uh, a year or two, and we've had a chance to have dinner with them several times, and uh, we had kind of come to the conclusion that the, uh, uh, the, the lady is uh, probably an atheist. Every time the subject of God came up, um, you know, just very uncomfortable. And um, something that her husband said suggested that was probably true. Well, just recently, um, somehow we got back onto the subject of religion based on a movie. And um, it was very clear that her conception of God was basically uh, the Old Testament, scary God. Uh, the future, revelation, lake of fire, scary God. And, uh, and in this case, uh, we were talking about the cross. And, um, and basically, we were talking about it for a while, and she became very uncomfortable talking about the cross. And she said, um, you know, this just, just scares me too much. Um, I, I don't want to talk about this anymore. And what scared her about the cross was uh, she, you know, she knew the story and everything that had happened, but in her mind, Jesus is not God. The real God is the Father, the one who was punishing his son. Okay, and I think if we, I mean, it just depends. How do you look at the cross? Uh, is the one on the cross fully God or not? If we see the cross in that way, I think the one person not to be afraid of at the cross is, is the one dying, you know, allowing his own children to torture him to death. Okay, so it, it's, it depends on how we perceive things. I think if we start with Jesus, we elevate Jesus on this pedestal, he explains everything, then I think things begin to fall into place. But it is amazing, I think, that sometimes even the cross uh, can, uh, can scare people about God. It's the pinnacle demonstration that should reveal God is not the one to be afraid of. But this whole concept of um, loving your enemies, again, if, if the Jesus event is primarily seen, those three and a half years, his death on the cross, his resurrection, if, if it is glossed over as just uh, the price that was paid, instead of seeing that Jesus came to show us the way to live, the way to treat people, he came to show us what God is like, that God is trustworthy, and this is the way we're to live, then I think it, it puts an entirely different um, uh, spin on things. And many people have uh, come to see that um, Jesus came to, to reveal an entirely different way of living. I'm sure many of you know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but uh, he very much uh, uh, talked a lot about this message of love for enemies. And he said, our enemies 
are those who harbor hostility against us, not those against whom we cherish hostility. As a Christian, I am called to treat my enemy as a brother and to meet hostility with love. That is very difficult to do. We just naturally want to meet hostility with hostility. My behavior is thus determined, not by the way others treat me, but by the treatment I receive from Jesus. Again, I think that's, that's what has to be the, the transforming uh, event. Um, Gandhi, I think, is, is a wonderful example of being committed to living this way. When we get to Romans, we'll talk about, um, you know, will Gandhi be in heaven and all of that. Well, I think if Gandhi isn't in heaven, we're all, we're all in trouble because I, I think he, he really knew Jesus, though he wouldn't have called himself a Christian. But I just want to read through a little bit. I'm sure most of you know this story about Gandhi. But again, does it work treating people this way? On April 6, 1930, after having marched 241 miles on foot from his village to the sea, Gandhi arrived at the coastal village of Dandi, India, and gathered salt. It was a simple act, but one which was illegal under British colonial rule of India. Gandhi was openly defying the British salt law. Within a month, people all over India were making salt illegally, and more than 100,000 were sent to jail. Many fell victim to police violence, but none retaliated or even defended themselves. The Salt March of 1930 was a vital step toward India's independence from Britain. Gandhi, who was known to many as Mahatma, had led the masses of India into a program of massive disobedience to British law. See, that is the myth about love for enemies, that it's weak, that it's submissive, that it doesn't involve something that is uh, you know, very uh, bold. Okay, but what was most important to Gandhi, however, was that the Indians used neither violence nor hatred in their fight for freedom. What was Gandhi's philosophy? Was he successful? For Gandhi, this term ahisma was the expression of the deepest love for all humans, including one's opponents. This nonviolence, therefore, included not only a lack of physical harm to them, but also a lack of hatred or ill will towards them. That's the hardest part, not even to hate your enemy. It's one thing not to restrain from killing them, but uh, not even to have ill will towards them. Gandhi rejected the traditional dichotomy between one's own side and the, quotes, enemy. He believed in the need to convince opponents of their injustice, not to punish them. And in this way, one could win their friendship and one's own freedom. See, if our goal with an enemy is to win them, okay, that, that leads us to treat them, I think, in a different way. If need be, one might need to suffer or die in order that they may be converted to love. Gandhi also firmly believed that if violence was used to achieve any end, even if it was employed in the name of justice, the result would be more violence. But such pragmatism in matters of nonviolence was unimportant to Gandhi. Thomas Merton writes, In Gandhi's mind, nonviolence was not simply a political tactic which was supremely useful and efficacious in liberating his people from foreign rule. So in other words, it wasn't just a method. It was a principle to be used whether it works or not. On the contrary, the spirit of nonviolence sprang from an inner realization of spiritual unity in himself. Okay, so it, it was a, a guiding principle in his life. To examine whether Gandhi's program was a success, we must first look at his objectives. I've already mentioned two of his aims from, from a very good book here. To earn Indian independence and to do it nonviolently. In these, Gandhi was successful. India became independent in 1947 with scarcely any violence toward the British, and Gandhi's leadership was crucial. The struggle had been difficult and long, but in the end, Britain simply lowered its flag over India and left. 
Sadly, however, Gandhi's dream was not fulfilled. Gandhi was dismayed by Hinduism's treatment of the Muslim minority in India and by the resulting calls for the creation of a separate Muslim state of Pakistan. Widespread distrust and hatred was growing between Hindus and Muslims, and on the eve of Indians' independence, riots erupted all over India. The country became a bloodbath in which it was estimated that a million lives were lost. Many believed that Gandhi's nonviolence had failed, but had it. In these months of chaos and terror, Gandhi spent his time in the most violent areas. Each night he preached peace and love and prayed, and Gandhi walked from village to village through the heart of that violent madness. Again, it, it was the principle that he was faithful to. And I think the, this the one other fantastic example, of course, is uh, uh, Martin Luther King. And, you know, he told people when they gathered for these marches, before they would leave on the march, he would tell them, you know what, if you have hatred in, these, in your hearts towards these people that we're marching against, please leave. He did not want the, the people that were a part of this to be protesting with violent intent um, toward, uh, you know, the people that were so abusive uh, to him and his followers at this time. He... We, we don't often uh, talk about the methods of Martin Luther King. He did wonderful things for racial uh, inequality and injustice, but his methods were the, very much he'd been influenced by Gandhi and, of course, uh, ultimately Jesus Christ. One quote from Martin Luther King. Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. But be assured that we'll wear you down by our capacity to suffer, and one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will appeal to your heart and conscience. Notice, winning your enemy. That we will win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. So again, the, the motive in loving enemies is really you're, you're trying to do something for them in the process. So a question is, well, what if it's not effective? Uh, again, I would say it's a, it's a principle that is to be lived out whether or not it is going to be effective. In this quote, I didn't put his name here, uh, Yoder said, this vision of ultimate good being determined by faithfulness, not results, is the point where we modern men get off. And what he's saying here is it is more important to be faithful than to be effective. You will do the faithful thing even if uh, it seems like, well, maybe it's not going to work. You'd be faithful to a principle. Okay, and Stanley Hauervoss here said, the basics for the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount is not what works, but rather the way God is. Cheek turning is not advocated as what works. It usually does not. I think that's a bit overstated because I think we have all these examples of where it worked very dramatically. But he says it's advocated because that is the way God is. God is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish, and we should be that way uh, as well. So um, I had this encounter here. I tried to find a picture of an angry uh, individual, but you'll encounter this a lot here in the third and fourth year of medical school. Uh, angry patients. I mean, you know, enemies can be of, of any type. So the most difficult are probably the intimate, you know, friends or family that, uh, that, where there's a conflict. But in this case, it was uh, fairly recently that uh, I gave a lecture for, um, well, it was, my goodness, two days ago. Time flies here. But it was um, for the uh, first year uh, neuroscience course. And somehow I blocked out my schedule, and they ended up putting in an 8 o'clock patient for me. So I get over there at 9.15, and the patient's daughter is uh, livid that um, they've had to wait so long. And they had a horrible experience in the parking lot. 
And um, so I go out to, to get the patient, and this was, it wasn't quite this angry, but it was, it was very, uh, very angry, very upset. And what, what we just have a natural tendency to do is to mirror the way we're being treated. Someone's hostile to us, we right away want to project back that same um, attitude. But what really stands out, people are not used to this, if you return hostility with no hostility, um, and instead, you know, project, uh, perhaps uh, what comes across is a caring attitude, even in the face of something like this, um, people don't expect that. Okay, it can have quite a, a powerful effect. Um, we could spend a long time talking about how you deal with patients like this. Uh, one thing that's been helpful for me is to be very curious about their story and ask for details. All right, so, uh, you know, when, when she was all upset, you know, I, I explained that I'd blocked out my schedule. I couldn't understand what had happened. So, well, let me find out about this right away. You know, and, and I'm uh, way behind now, but I called up our neurology secretary. You know, Mr. Jones was not supposed to be on the schedule. What happened? And, well, just a second, let me look into it. And uh, she found out that they mailed him a letter a month ago to reschedule his appointment for 10 o'clock. And so I said, well, you know, your appointment was, uh, you were mailed a letter two months ago. And, uh, oh, you have an old address uh, here, so it went to the wrong address. But I guess we'd mailed that out to you. And so that helped. And then we talked about the parking lot experience. What side did you park on? West side, east side? Oh, yeah, it's really bad over there. And we, you know, went through a lot of what had happened. She got to talk it out. Okay, and then finally, after about 20 minutes, okay, now I'm glad you're here. What can we do? What can I do for you? And, you know, it was diffused at that point. Much better to spend the time diffusing a situation like this than to say, look, it wasn't my fault. Let's, let's get to it, okay? This is a waste of time here, arguing. Um, it's uh, not going to end up as a good encounter if you uh, tackle it that way. So we have enemies like this. Now I have to finish off here with the life of Elisha. You know, was it unfair? Elijah went up to heaven. Was Elisha not as good as Elijah? Elisha, Elisha not only died, he suffered, apparently. He was sick with a fatal disease. And uh, I won't read the story about the king coming to him on his deathbed. But I like to imagine Elisha being faithful unto death, even under these circumstances that were very different than Elijah. But how many of you are aware of this story? After Elisha's death, Elisha died and was buried. And every year, bands of Moabites used to invade the land of Israel. And one time during a funeral, one of those bands was seen, and the people threw the corpse into Elisha's tomb and ran off. And as soon as the body came into contact with Elisha's bones, the man came back to life and stood up. And so just imagine here, you're in a funeral procession, and uh, you, know, you dump your uncle or whoever it is um, into the tomb, because you turn around and you see the Moabites, and so you're running, and you turn around to see if the Moabites are catching up with you, and there's your uncle up from the tomb, you know? So it would be quite a, quite a shock, okay? So again, why do we have miracles like this? Because there's no faith, and God is trying to get attention. And I think this would get attention, maybe, and some people would say, you know what, maybe we should have taken that prophet Elisha a little more seriously. Father, thank you again for um, the Bible, which gives us all of these challenging stories. Pray that for each person here that um, none of us have a complete knowledge of truth and exactly what is the ideal, but help us to come closer to the ideal, to appreciate the ideal more and more as seen in Jesus, and help us to uh, live out the principle of your kingdom in our own lives. Amen.